Hey, Father Sam. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's going pretty dandy, man. Ooh, dandy. Yeah. We haven't used a word like that on this show ever. Well, guess what, Father? <laughs> you know, a scripture scholar might call that a hopox legomenon, <laughs> which is a word that only appears once. I have no idea what that word means. I'm pretty sure I, I used that correctly. Okay. Um, our guest would be able to correct me. I'm sure Dr. she Nina would. Sophie Hiraman. Dr. Nina uh, is the author of A Thirst for the Spirit, Biblical Wisdom for Desert Times. Yeah. This book is published by Emmaus Road Publishing. Uh, it has a forward by Dr. Scott Hahn. Friend of the show, Dr. Scott Hahn. Friend of the show, Dr. Scott Hahn. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Matt. It's brilliant. I... Yeah, and, and I told you when we when we got our hands on this book and I sat down and started reading it that it it would have only taken me one day, but I decided that I would be responsible and go to sleep for the night um, because I started reading it too late in the evening and I got through it the next morning. I was I was the the book is phenomenal. Yeah, it in, is it in is. seven short chapters she just blows the doors off of so many mysterious things mm -hmm. in the Bible. And and it's incredible. And not only is it a phenomenal work of theology, but it's very applicable to today. Oh yeah. She's speaking to some really important cultural issues you know, going on right now, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the podcast as well. But I think a, a really big thing with this is we're witnessing something. What Dr. Nina Sophie Hermann has done here is is she's made an entry into the conversation, into the yeah. theological conversation that's happening right now, and into I think the popular Catholic literature that's out there right now. Yeah. And and this entry is really important because she's breaking open scripture in such a powerful way. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when we were talking with her was that for all of the hot button issue stuff that that so often comes up when you have these conversations with people, where you know they want to talk about why the church does this or does that. When you start to talk about the Bible, mm -hmm. and you start to talk about it the way that she does, it's it's not enough to just cite chapter and verse. No, you know, I, I could sit there and tell you, well, in in Matthew right, uh, sixteen yeah. it says this, you know, no, no, no. yeah, you could proof text it, but but you can't when it's this method, like it's right. Just... And she's her approach is not to talk about just the chapter and verse, but it's rather to talk about the words themselves. Yeah. So this is what this yeah, word I mean, means, the, and then the, in the here's first this chapter, theme that you see. In the first yeah. chapter, she's like investigating what the word helper means for several pages, and it changes the way you look at Adam and Eve's relationship. Right. Yes. And so then as she, as she goes into this, she's, her, her style is not to just throw out, well, this is what the Bible says. It's to explain how this theme unlocks the truth about humanity, unlocks the truth about who we are, and unlocks the truth about our relationship with God. And so then let's go back and read the scripture again, and all of a sudden you start getting all this insight. She's doing something that we desperately need in the church today. Yep. Absolutely. So I'm really excited to introduce you, listener, to Dr. Nina Sophie Hermann. Uh, check out all of the show notes for more stuff about her and buy A Thirst for the Spirit, Biblical Wisdom for Desert Times. But the countdown yeah, is fun. Is fun. <laughs> it's always fun. It's always fun. Wow. Well, this is a really special episode. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Nina Sophie Hermann. Hermann? Hermann. Am I getting it right? Hermann. <laughs> Hermann. Well, Nina, 
I'm I'm really happy to have you here, um, and so happy to see you again. It's been it's been such a long time. Welcome to the tangent. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here, and equally happy to see you again. Amazing after so <laughs> many years. I know it's been great. Um, Nina, may, may I tell Matt a story, please, real quick? Go with, ahead with with you here. I, I'm not I'm not trying to shut you out or anything, but Matt, do you remember when? Uh, Several weeks back, we had uh, we had Dr. Scott Hahn, friend of the show, friend of the Hahn, show, Dr. Scott to, Hahn, yeah, yes, for, for a quick interview. How, right? how could I forget? And, well, so this is the thing, right? You had that very memorable moment. Yes, when as we were speaking, you asked a very important question, mm-hmm. and Dr. Scott Hahn said to you, "Do you remember his words?" He said, "Matt, you've put your finger right on it." <laughs> and what that did for you, yeah, to know that Dr. Scott Hahn thought that your question was so important <laughs> and so key right yeah it was yeah i'm gonna tell you about my my dr scott han moment first okay perfect i Except can't that wait. my dr scott han moment actually involves nina our guest <laughs> <laughs> at the pontifical gregorian university instruction is given in italian and when you're in your first year there you assume that everybody knows italian except for you and so you sit there in, in, in lectures feeling like a, a real dope because you're convinced that especially anybody who's from Europe knows what's going on. And here was Nina, who we found out was not only a, a native German speaker, uh, her, her Italian was perfect, so was her English, and, and then there were several other languages that she was able to, to have conversations in. And so we knew that she knew what was going on. And it was sometime in, I'm pretty sure it was our second year, Nina, and during a, a, a lecture, the professor, I don't remember which professor it was, so that I think damages the story a little bit, but the professor said something and you turned around and you looked at me and you asked me what he had said. <laughs> and I was able to repeat to you what he had said. And it was like, after that, I went, Nina wants to know if I understood something. <laughs> this is amazing. This is the greatest day that's ever happened. Like, I was able to tell Nina a thing. <laughs> So, Nina, thank you for being my Dr. Scott. <laughs> you could have had many more of these moments. I don't know how I fooled you that I would understand everything. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is what, I, what I think of Nina. But, Nina, be- before we get into the book, A Thirst for the Spirit, Biblical Wisdom for Desert Times, which is, I'm so excited about the book by thank itself. Thank you. And can't wait, can't wait for you to write more books. <laughs> Um, and you're going to have to now. Okay. okay. <laughs> 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 <Good> moment. <laughs> but before we get into the book, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how you came from, from Germany to studying in Rome to teaching now in San Francisco? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a long question. I hope it won't fill the entire episode. <laughs> so if I it does, to... that's okay. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> uh, well, Holy Spirit, help me to just be to the point. So, uh, very long story short, I'm the oldest of six children growing up in a German Catholic family. I'm underlining German Catholic, which I guess you all know what this means in the modern context. Everything you're seeing now with this nodal path and the Catholic newspapers, none of this is new. What's new for us Germans is that finally the world is paying attention and they're listening to us and knowing what's going on. Before we had these same... Of course, the current Episcopate is a little bit fresher. 20 years ago, it was a little better, but basically they were all studying in the same universities that our priests were studying. And so 
I grew up in a country that was more focused on social justice and things like that. I don't remember in my childhood ever really being um, introduced to what we would call classical Catholicism, even though to def the defense of my parents, they really tried, but there wasn't much extra, right? So, and this Sunday going Catholic, um, I never missed a single mass in my life, but I never met Jesus until... So I have to be fair, twice in my teenage years outside of Germany, I went on a pilgrimage to Paris-le-Monial, which is the place where Jesus appeared to Mary Mar Margaret Alacoque, right? And there, there was a youth gathering of a charismatic French community. And I did, for the first time, encounter Christ, but I was 15. This was a holiday. And I kind of figured, okay, God exists. Jesus is for real, but he lives in France. So I go back to Germany. <laughs> Never had a follow-up, um, studied law, traveled all over the world, was blessed to be sucked into very uh, affluent friend circles. Within a short time, I had kind of literally visited all continents and was spoiled through my friends, but miserable. And studying law, and just before the bar exam, I met a woman who... Uh, sorry, not a woman. I met my own aunt who was at the end of her 60s and had been walking on crutches for 40 years. And I meet her and suddenly she's without crutches. And this lady had seen all the doctors in the world. We in Germany, we would say she even went to America and they couldn't help her. So it was clear <laughs> medicine couldn't help her. She was walking with her crutches. Now she's 68 and comes jumping like a little girl without her crutches. And of course, I said, Auntie, what happened to you? And she said, Nina, I went to this retreat preached by Indian preachers. Jesus healed me. I was like, no way. Yes, Jesus healed me. So then in addition, she told me about lots of prophecies she got in this retreat, you know, words of knowledge and it all came true. And I got really interested in meeting this Jesus and going to that retreat, not because I needed to be healed of anything, but because I wanted to know my vocation. I was about to, you know, do the bar exam, which meant, do I want to be a lawyer for the rest of my life? Do I want to get married to the boyfriend I had the, at the moment? It was just all these big questions. So... I ended up going to that very same retreat and all I wanted was to hear a preacher tell me whether I should get married to my boyfriend. Where what happened in this retreat preached by Indian missionaries who could hardly speak in English that we Germans could understand. Um, there for the first time I heard the full gospel, right? Like not just the mini version we get in Germany, but what is sin? What is mortal sin? Why did Jesus die for us on the cross? I had asked this question many, many times, and I never got a satisfying answer. Because all I ever got was kind of the runner theology, which is um, the cross was more or less an accident, and Jesus is just showing us how much he loves us by not fighting back, you know. <laughs> uh, but it was never the kerygma, he died for our sins. God himself found the solution for that which separates me from him, right? For me, it was, mm. it was the first and most convincing moment in my life that I felt the love of God just because they explained that this much God has loved the world, that he gave his only son to die for our sins. Not only that, the entire retreat was preached 
solely with the Word of God. There was no philosophy or complicated concepts. They were just citing the Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation. Every book showed up in that retreat. Every word the preacher spoke came straight from the Bible and had this hugely transforming effect. I experienced the Father's love for the first time in my life. I, for the first time, realized what it means that Jesus has risen, right? Because in my Catholicism, Jesus had ascended into heaven, and now we're waiting for him to come back someday. <laughs> and the 12, the Ten Commandments were like um, uh, a test you have to pass if we go to heaven. But I had no concept of the Ten Commandments being God's most precious gift to show me how to live a happy and fulfilled life down here. Plus, um, not knowing that sin was actually damaging my well-being. You know, I was the typical, and I was no longer a teenager. I was a young adult. I was 26. I was still under this impression God kind of makes our life miserable by asking us to follow the commandments while everybody else is having a happy life. And according to the German theology, they are all going to ha heaven just as well as us. So why am I bound to keep the commandments? <laughs> and these people who are lucky not to know him, they don't have to keep them. Right. So all of that fell into places with these Indians. And most importantly, you know, then by understanding what sin is and understanding that Jesus had died for my sins and that um, not only is confession a gift, but that we have this enormous gift called the Holy Spirit, which and who enables us to not sin and live a life of holiness and in communion with God, etc. That was so new that at the end of the retreat, I felt like, what is wrong with my church? That I have never missed a single Sunday Mass in my life, and I've never heard all these things, which are the key, the kerygma of our faith, right? Something is wrong with my church. And from then on, onwards, I was glued to the Bible, um, of course, that's typically what happens when you have a conversion and you receive the Holy Spirit, the scripture comes alive, right? So instead of studying for my bar exam, which was four weeks later, I started just being reading the Bible. I'd go to the bathroom to read the Bible secretly. And then afterwards, <laughs> I, I, um, I had understood also one very important thing that um, a vocation is not something that the prophet tells you. It was kind of my intention to just go to that retreat and speak to these people who have a gift of knowledge and then they tell you what you need to do. What I got in my counseling was follow the commandments and God will show you which path to choose. That's Psalm 25 verse 12. Who is the man who fears God? Him he will choose the way to show the way to choose. So very clearly in theological language, if you're in a state of grace, then the Holy Spirit guides you from within and you don't need an oracle or someone to tell you. So I just followed that and I continued with my career, not for very long, luckily, because six months later, um, I had gotten so much clarity. I went on another retreat and I felt clearly the Lord offering me to give up this law um, career, which I was only just starting. And I felt him calling a bit like Abraham, the word that resonated in my heart was forget your people and your father's house and go into the country I will show you. And of course, I thought, well, this is just a metaphor, you know, you, it just means leave your parents and to go and join a convent. And the problem was the convents I knew were all about kindergartens, which is a good thing. But um, what I felt was missing in my church was the preaching of the gospel, the word of God, new evangelization. Mm. So I ended up having a very very um, holy and good spiritual director who kind of pushed me to this idea that the Lord might be calling me, yes, to give my life fully to him, 
but not join a convent the way we had them in Germany, but just allow him to guide me and see how I can serve the church in the new evangelization and still give all my life to the kingdom. And so he eventually then led me, he invited me at that point, I was already 30, to go and study um, theology. And I started in Frankfurt with the Jesuits. And after two years, luckily, he changed his mind. The original idea was, and he was right, I should study in Germany to understand the problems of the German church. And I did, those two years were very eye-opening. But then after two years, he said, well, maybe it's a good idea to continue in Rome. And the original idea was simply to get a degree in theology and come back to Germany and work in, um, you know, I, I've really started speaking about the underground church in Germany because those <laughs> of us who want to have the sacraments, we all kind of gather around retreat centers where we know you have uh, priests who are in line with what the church teaches and people flock to these places to receive the sacraments and and just, you know, and, and learn the faith. And the plan was I should just come back and, um, and teach um, and give retreats in, in this uh, one center of a kind of community I belong to. And then while I was in Rome, um, the Jesuits invited me to get a doctorate and um, in view of maybe teaching uh, in an institution um, for, for, for priestly formation. And that's when my German um, spiritual director said, Nina, if you're called to somehow um, collaborate in the formation of future priests, that's the higher good. That's where the universal church is calling you to. Um, prepare yourself for that. So then I was sent to do this doctorate. And the plan was still, um, in a way, to my personal plan was still to just go back to Germany because the need is so great, right? And it's sure. falling apart. But towards the end of this doctorate, I got several invitations to go and um, and teach in a in a in a seminary or an ecclesial faculty. And one of these invitations came from the Archbishop um, of San Francisco, Cordiglione. And that was, you know, and you know this because as a priest, you have this experience. For me, the fact that a bishop was asking me to come and help him, this felt like that's not just my crazy idea. Like I'd never fathomed to go to San Francisco in my life. But I felt like here's a successor of the apostles asking me to help that sounds like the Lord's voice. Still, I was uh, worried. Well, of course, I still discerned. And, and my spiritual director again said, what does the Lord say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? Go into the whole world and preach my word. Beginning of Acts, go to the ends of the earth. There you will be my witnesses. And from Germany viewed... The ends of the earth truly is either China or San Francisco. <laughs> you can't go out of the east or west. <laughs> so I was blessed that these two words I got to live literally, leave your father and your father's house and go into the country I will show you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. I set off from Jerusalem where I finished my PhD. I went to Rome, taught there for a month, uh, for a semester. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria until the ends of the earth. And so I find myself now teaching in the center seminary in San Francisco, uh, not in San Francisco, it's in Menlo Park, but it belongs to the Diocese of San Francisco. And it's been the blessing of my lifetime. And I, you know, um, I've, I'm very, very conscious of the fact that it's, it's an enormous honor that God does us to be involved in priestly formation and mm. 
teach his word, because as De Verbum says, we venerate the word of God with the same reverence as the Eucharist. And if we think with how much reverence we prepare you and you approach the altar, that I get to teach the word of God um, is a, a grace that I could have never, ever, ever imagined 20 years ago, well mm. now 25 years ago, when the Lord called me a little bit like Matthew from my lawyer's desk to leave behind everything and just call, follow into the land he's going to show me. So wow. that's the story in a nutshell. <laughs> I think it's great. And, Thank you and for sharing. Think of how important those, uh, how important that role is teaching future priests the word. Yeah, it's um, teaching the word. I mean, we were in scripture classes together, and there were only two. I remember anything worthwhile from. I, I only remember anything worthwhile from the, the course on, on Paul and the course on John. Oh, really? And the, what about Bruna Costa Corta? Oh, sorry. That's yes. right. I should never I should never neglect her. That was the best class. <laughs> yes. That was everybody's favorite class. You're right. Wisdom, literature, Psalms, Job. That was yeah. right. Right. Professor Costa Corta, was, she was amazing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, synoptics, I could take it or leave it. That was a terrible class. I agree. And you know, I was just reading an, a, a, um, a very good article by Peter Williamson about how we should teach in a seminary. And the one thing he says is we should not pass on what we received. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought yeah. about. What I received is not helpful. <laughs> That's so good. Yes. I have a question. Be before we move towards the book here, you, you mentioned. Uh, working in in retreat centers, mm -hmm. in like within Germany, so a place where, yeah, right now the the German church is is kind of a mess, and there's there's a lot there, and and I don't think we well maybe we could go into talking about what you think about the synod, and but maybe not, I don't know, um, <laughs> but the I have the sense, and and my focus was in ecclesiology when I when I did the licentiate. My, my sense has been that in the United States, our history as a church is very much related to the diocese. And so it was diocesan priests coming over. Now we had Jesuits, we had Franciscans uh, in, in particular who did a tremendous amount of missionary work, but there was always a, a sense in really in the new world in general of uh, the diocesan clergy also being kind of always alongside. Whereas what I see, and I might have the history wrong here, but what I see in, in Europe is always that it was the monasteries that were established. And then at the monastery, that's where the cathedrals were built or that's where the cities grew up. And it was because of the presence of the monasteries. It wasn't because of the bishop having lots of parishes and sending out his own diocesan secular clergy. It was the monasteries really being the heart. And as it seems to me like as Europe shifts to more of a diocesan model and less monastic based, uh, the problems are coming up not in the monasteries so much as in the diocese. So some of the challenges of evangelization are now being answered by new monastic communities and by new um, ecclesial communities that are, are promoting spirituality retreats and, and doing these things kind of I don't want to say separate because that's not a theology of communion, but yeah. <laughs> in a way separate from yeah. the the ordinary operations of, of your average diocese. Whereas in the United States, things still are more tied to a You're diocese right. and, and less to, to that monastic. That's method. a very, very that good, make sense? You know, that's a very, very good observation. Because um, you're absolutely right, and I think Pope Benedict also speaks about that, right? The reason why he adopted the name Benedict, and good observation, even geographically, you have the monastery, München, for example, Monaco, no? Uh, Munich in, in English. 
Munich comes from the term Monaco. München is the mönch, the, the monk. Hmm. And uh, and the entire city developed around this monastery. Uh, same with France, right? Uh, with Paris. So um, you're yeah. absolutely right that it was originally the monks, the Irish monks, the Benedictines who evangelized mainly Europe, Germany very strongly. Um, our saint is Saint Boniface, and he was a Benedictine. And and till this day, the bishops' conference meets above his tomb in Fulda. Um, but I never hmm. paid attention to the fact that, of course. By the time America is evangelized, Europe has already developed this diocesan system, but this must be one of the very first countries in the world that starts a church being formed by this diocesan system and not the, the that is super yeah. interesting. I'd never thought about that. Must be, well, the moment we start conquering the new world, <laughs> um, that this diocesan model gets yeah. exported. But you're absolutely right that the renewal, uh, as we see it happening in Europe, and I don't know how far this goes back, but certainly after the council, some of these movements already existed before the council, like Chiara Lubick, for example, I think she started during the Second World War. I mean, then Opus Dei must also be mentioned because that's a lave movement. But then there's this, right. straight after the council, suddenly, like mushrooms springing forth, so many um, lay movements, and that's tr certainly a fruit of the spirit of the council, reminding the laity that they're called to be holy, and them gathering together in larger groups and striving to live their baptismal vocation. And you're right, at least in Germany and in France, I see this happening very strongly. If you meet someone on fire with the faith, normally they belong to some kind of movement where they get more of a catechetical instruction than they would typically in the diocese because the diocese is all about maintenance and you just do business as usual, you yeah. give your sacraments, but they're not, they're not evangelizing. And America is very different in that sense. Like when I, I have to admit, this is my first experience ever in my lifetime that I enjoy going to a parish because I feel this parish, well, I'm very blessed. My parish has 24-7 adoration for the last 27 years. Mm. And you feel it in that wow. parish. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that's good because I'm working on getting 24-7 adoration started in my parish right now. Oh, great. So in 27 years, we'll see what the fruits <laughs> are. But I, I love it. Great. <laughs> I love it. Now, do you mind if I um, ask you how, how a... Uh, a German Catholic might receive the sacraments. I know that you said that. So, so given the news, right, in the mm. last month or so, mm. is there is it the case that all of a sudden there are now going to be a lot of Catholics that need to switch parishes, or is it or is it rather going to be the case that they're all funneling into these retreat centers? Because because I, I don't know. I, maybe it's because I grew up in this American diocesan like mind mindset that I, I I'm a teacher and one of my students said to me like. What are they going to do? Like, is there just going to be like a whole new church or? Well, we, we are all wondering. So um, one thing that's also striking about America that 
you choose your parish, right? If you don't like right. the parish yeah, next sure. door, you prefer the other one, you go there. So we're not used to that. We are, sure. we grow, even, we don't even register for the parish, right? You're born. And so right. then you are being registered to the parish next door in your mm. village because that's where your church tax and the whole system. Right, I, I forgot you. about the, the tax so system. So if you, if you even go to a parish in a different village or a town, you kind of feel guilty. And uh, like my parents... We didn't have such a good parish, but they felt so loyal and needing to, they would always take us to this parish, even though the neighboring town had a much better parish, but that's where you feel your loyalty is. Now with what's happening now, um, I feel totally free to go to the parish where I feel they are still Roman Catholic. So mm -hmm. for example, I'm blessed because my parents' house is 10 minutes from the diocese of, we're in the diocese of Aachen, which I don't know how you say that in English. It's um, X in French. It's where Charlemagne was crowned. So oh. beautiful old cathedral. It was built according to the model of the Holy Sepulchre. It goes back to the ninth century. And that's my diocese. But this bishop came out saying that uh, we are now going to bless same-sex couples and that there's nothing wrong with this and that's even not okay to say that if our it's not okay to say that a same-sex attraction is disordered and it's not okay to say that this disorder has something to do with original sin because it has nothing to do with original sin according to my bishop uh, god has created us this way so um and we they in my diocese they just went ahead and they're already blessing same-sex couples everywhere and all the church, not all the church, but many of the churches flow the ra flow the rainbow flag. And for me, this has become now a sign of wow. a church that I'm not going to go into. And so mm -hmm. luckily, 10 minutes down the road, the Diocese of Cologne starts. And Cologne is one of the, has one of the five bishops that are remaining faithful to Rome. Mm -hmm. And so this is exactly what's happening. I'm now going to mass. And my, and my sister, even though she, my sister lives in my parents' house, we have been living there for the last 50 years. My sister now takes her children for communion preparation to the neighboring diocese because she wants to be in a Roman Catholic parish. Mm. And so what we see happening is what we call like a dirty schism because unfortunately, as long as Rome doesn't pronounce the schism, we right. all remain in the same blurry... Right, yeah. right, yeah. And I feel most sorry for the priests because they can't just go to the neighboring bishop's diocese right. and name his name in the yeah. <laughs> Eucharistic right. prayer. You know, it's it's interesting you say it that way. That the bishop is of of Cologne is is one of the bishops who's remained faithful. Mm -hmm. I think that's the strongest I've heard anybody speak, and I'm I'm grateful to hear it said that way because yeah. I've from from this distance like watching and seeing what's going on in in Germany and and blatant disregard for what the church mm -hmm. teaches um, it's it's one thing to wrestle with the practical pastoral application of what the church teaches mm -hmm. and, and how do we how do we meet people how do we accompany people Francis keeps talking about accompaniment yeah. and how do we how do we really truly encounter people and walk with them towards the Lord but there's just this sort of blatant there's nothing wrong if there and so there's there 
these German bishops and, and so much of what's coming out of the synodal path is saying there's no such thing as any problem. Every Everything is, is perfectly acceptable and fine. I mean, at a certain point, there's got to be a contradiction, right? There's yeah. got to be some place where there's... How can you say that anything is, is true? But it's so disappointing to see that. But to hear somebody actually say faithful to the church, faithful to what the church teaches, faithful to the gospel, uh, it, instead of more like, well, they're, they're sort of... Uh, they're proposing new ideas. No, to say it's infidelity. Exactly, these are not new ideas. <laughs> say this, right? is, this is wrong. What they're what they're saying is is incorrect. It's bad theology. It's leading people astray. Yeah. I mean, to to say it in such strong terms is really powerful. And so, yeah. I'm, I'm excited that you said Well, um, uh, <laughs> you, you might want to read the Norwegian bishops just came out with um, a declaration, and I, there, I thought there, I thought that their their document was really beautiful because it, I, I think it hit all the right notes of compassion exactly. and clarity. Exactly. And to to show that clarity and compassion are not mutually exclusive, we can we can speak about what the church teaches, especially on the big, uh-huh. you know, the, the the big ticket social right, issues, right? Like the hot button right. issues, yeah. Yeah, we can we can speak with clarity about what the church teaches, but that doesn't mean that there's not compassion that goes along with it. And I think the Norwegian bishops did a great job of well, not just Norwegian, right? It was also the Swedish. Yeah, so the, the whole sorry, I should have said the, the whole, northern. They have a term for the all these Scandinavian countries together. The Scandinavian. Yeah. yeah. When they, did that? I th- I when they, did that document come out? Did it come out before or after? After the, the fifth. From- so just recently, just this week, I think. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, it was like yeah, this past week. Of course, by the time this this airs, it will have been like a month ago. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> fair, last enough. Month. fair enough. Yeah, but yeah. after the but Germans it, I, I came really out good. with their public declaration that we're going to go ahead and and introduce all these new things, um, it the Norwegian, the sorry, the northern so these Scandinavian bishops have been very um, attentive to what's happening in Germany. They, in a way, they do something similar to what Chapu Bishop or was it Cardinal Bishop Chapu did a cu- couple of years ago. The Germans. I don't remember what it was. It was one of these hot button issues. The Germans said, we're going to do this. And then Chapu wrote an article saying, whatever's made in Germany does not stay in Germany. And as a bishop and shepherd of my diocese, I have the the obligation, the responsibility to tell you my own sheep. So he wrote to his own diocese, lest you get confused by what's coming out of Germany, this is what I have to teach you. And so the Norwegians are very much the same talking to their own people, but avoiding that they be confused by what comes out from mm-hmm. my people. Yeah. Do you that think was, that there powerful. will be a time of persecution for those who remain faithful to the Roman Catholic Church in Germany? I think so, and it is already slowly starting in the sense that, um, for example, there was one priest, a Benedictine, who during the Christmas homily said, God, what we celebrate at Christmas is God giving us the Holy Trinity on earth, right? This, the Holy Family as a reflection of the Holy Trinity, but just a model of what he has created humanity for, family, a father, a mother, and a child. And so in that homily, he mentioned that um, gender ideology is wrong and that God's plan for humanity is a family with a man and a woman and a child. And um, someone recorded this, put it on his Twitter account, 
And within a week, both the bishop of that diocese and the monastery distanced themselves from that homily. It is outrageous to, you know, to offense people and hurt their feelings during the Christmas homily. And the ma this poor monk is no longer allowed to preach. And nothing what he said in that homily was extreme or, you know, right. offensive in any way. Right. Or no. contrary to what the church no, teaches yeah, exactly. the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Like he wasn't being... Wow. You know, you you could teach the truth, but do it in such a way that you really hurt people's feelings. Like, uh, no, he wasn't. Yeah. And um, yeah, so he's been silenced. So that's already starting. And the head of the German Bishops' Conference, his name is Bishop Betzing. He came out with guidelines um, for the pedagogy in everything concerning gender and sexual education. And these guidelines are horrific. But he's uh, basically saying that if anybody in his diocese discriminates against, let's say, someone in the LGBTQ community, the diocese would cooperate with the German law. So mm -hmm. the bishop's going to turn you in against, uh, turn you into the state prosecution. If you don't collaborate with his, if you if, if you basically wow. stand up and preach what the gospel says, right. well, and so this pre standing up and preaching what the gospel says, mm. and especially on on this issue, this is this is actually a really good connection here, yeah. Because let's let's talk about your book for a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why we invited there, you Father here, Sam. I was getting yeah. there too. <laughs> well, no, but but this is this is so a thirst for the spirit, biblical wisdom for desert times. I think desert times is a really important. Uh, little subtitle there that we are living very much in desert times when there's big questions now about what's what's our future as a church going to look like and uh, Nina I think you coming from from the German church you have a unique perspective on on what that desert really is and a, a unique experience of, of what that is and then people close to you who are living it every day you know you have uh, let's say we've we've given you sanctuary here in the United <laughs> States where you can you can <laughs> experience a church that's not quite that far no. yet but still i mean there's there's these challenges so your first chapter of this book okay and I, I, you know from the email that i sent you nina that your first chapter was the one that that just really floored me but the whole book i mean each here's how i understand the book you tell me if i if i've got the format incorrect uh, these are basically seven different yeah. Uh, presentations, papers, or talks yeah. that you have exactly. uh, delivered yeah. in different places. Yeah. Uh, and so while there's a relationship between them all, uh, they don't constitute necessarily one theological work. This is the multiple different uh, projects that you've, that exactly. you've worked on, yeah. compiled yeah. Into, into one yeah, volume. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's also, I think, um, okay. should be encouraging for a reader because not everybody always has the, you know, wants to read an entire book, but you can just read one chapter okay. and then read another chapter maybe two years from now. <laughs> Right. And if someone says, "Have you read um, the book?" You can say yes because you just read one chapter. <laughs> this is this is what's going to happen. Though you're going to get this book. You're going to pick it up. You're going to read the first chapter, and you're not going to be able to yeah, put it yeah, down. Exactly. That's what happened to me. I read I read the first chapter. And I went, "Oh no, oh no, she got me." Because there's so much more in here. But the first chapter, and Nina, I'm going to say it now. I want the first chapter to be its own book. Yeah. Like, how 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 long do you need? I <laughs> Right. To stretch out that first chapter into a full length book. <laughs> I, how long do you need and how much of Father Sam's salary do you need? <laughs> exactly. 
I make no money. No, but, no. no. Yeah, all I need is for the Lord to give me the time. So I'm telling you what's happening. Um, next year I have a sabbatical, but I agreed to write a commentary on three biblical books on women. I never wanted to do the, any of this, right? My mother was kind of into this feminism, and it never interested me because, of course, I'm blessed to have grown up in a world where all, every, all the roads were paved for us women, right? I never had to fight for anything. Mm -hmm. I just took it for granted. So there's not a drop of feminism in me. Now that this gender ideology is coming along. Now I'm finding myself turning into a feminist because I suddenly realize we have something to fight for, what it means to be a woman. And not only vis-a-vis -vis the gender ideology, but also in my own, now again, we're back to Germany, are these women wanting to be priests or not to understanding the beauty of their womanhood and our own dignity and vocation and mission mm -hmm. in the church? And we would lose all this if we were to be ordained priests. It's just... I think it's even an insult to women to want to make them priest. <laughs> um, but anyway, so next year I, I, I ended up getting into this. Because I wrote this book, I've been asked to write a commentary on Esther, Ruth, and Judith. And I hope okay. this is going to give me more insight on what the Bible has to say about the vocation of women. And of course, these are very three very powerful women. Um, Ruth needs to be unpacked, but Esther is so obvious, right? She, she becomes the queen. She, she is the savior in that book. Um, same with Judith. Judith is like a new David um, who is decapitating no longer Goliath, but Holofernes. So in both of these books, the key savior of God's people is a woman in very different ways. And this, of course, is not only an Israelology. So within the Old Testament, Israel is meditating on its own role amongst the nations and God, vis-a-vis -vis God and the nations. But it's a perfect prefiguration of who Mary is and who the church is and gives us a deep insight into God's vision of woman, which goes far beyond kitchen, children, church, as we say in German. <laughs> and I feel like in, in, in German, that's going to be uh, Kirche, Kinder, and Very please good. tell me kitchen, like, follows along, right? Kirche, Küche, Kinder. Does... Kirche, Küche, <laughs> Küche, Kinder, Kirche. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I knew in German it's got to be something like very that. Very good, very good. I didn't oh, know I you spoke it. German. Yeah. I so anyway, but, I hope know, that I... after writing that commentary, that'll give me enough material. Because I, what I really want to do is, like you say, develop this chapter. Um, and, and I really only scratch on, one, on the surface of one aspect in this chapter, the relationship between woman and the Holy Spirit. Because, of course, this mm. is fully de developed in Mary. So it should be a book, a biblical theology of woman, but seeing in Mary the archetypal woman same as christ as the archetypal man right and yeah so i mean in in, in this first chapter where, where you're talking about the pneumatological vocation of eve yeah all right what does that mean the <laughs> pneumatological vocation because i think first of all it's a great word uh and a hugely important theological concept but that you break down really beautifully so i was really grateful that you defined it in one of the first sentences of the chapter <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So w w the the way the way then I start talking about it is because I found uh, this wonderful Orthodox theologian F. Dokimov, right? And he has a beautiful book, which I now forget the title in English. But um, he fleshes it out, and he says the male vocation is more Christ-bearing, the female is more spirit-bearing, and so. 
um, so what am I trying to say? Of course, I'm not claiming that women would have more Holy Spirit than men because that's nonsense, right? <laughs> but uh, to put it in simple terms, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that man was created in the image and likeness of God. And if you read carefully Genesis 1, 27, it says man was created in the image of God, male and female, he created them. So there seems to be something in their maleness and femaleness, which in their complementarity then becomes the image of God. And this reality has been neglected for the longest time in the church. It was always there, but it wasn't focused on. And it's really John Paul II who brings the focus back on it, because for a long time we would just say, okay, how is man the image and likeness of God? Because he has mind, will, and memory, right? Intellect, memory, and will. But that is very monadic thinking, as if I myself just by having memory, intellect, and will am somehow a reflection of God. And John Paul II says, that's all right, but what is the deepest essence of God? God is three persons in communion, and God has created us to be in communion with two persons becoming one in the flesh is a reflection of the inner Trinitarian Perichoresis, the theologians call it. So the so the mm. uh, inter. I don't know how you say that in English. The, uh, how the th the the three persons the in, in you can say it in English because you're the theologian. <laughs> it's, it's the the interpenetration. Thank you. That's the term. Interpenetrations yeah. of these three persons in God, in love, right? And um, so what I what it trickles down to is if male and female are created to be the image of God, and we know, now I'm not saying that we derive, that we learn something about God by looking at man and woman, it's the other way around. God revealed to us in Jesus Christ who he is as the triune God, and he reveals to us that Jesus and the Spirit cooperate in their mutual mission in the salvation of humanity. And if we look at the relationships between the three persons in the Trinity, we see that while the three of them are God with equal dignity, and that's what's so important, they still have distinct missions. And just because the Holy Spirit has a different mission than the Son doesn't make him minor than the Son, right? And so mm -hmm. what some church fathers have said, and that's where I retrieve it from, is that um, in creating us male and female, we get a created reflection of the relationship between the Son and the Spirit in their mission vis-a-vis -vis creation. And that means if I want to know how to understand my mission as a woman in this world and is this cosmos, the person who, whose activity mirrors for me what I'm called to do is the Holy Spirit. You know, it's it's much more evident with regards to the male vocation because we're so used to seeing, I mean, Christ is a man. Uh, the Logos has, we, we see it in his in his humanity as a male human being, uh, the archetype of all humanity, but also particularly of what it means to be male. But as, but um, we don't, mm, and, and this, I think this is clearly a, a consequence of original sin. Um, you know how some people say that woman is like the apple of of God's eye. Um, mm -hmm. 
because she is the key to life, of course, that's where Satan most attacks. So the vision we have of womanhood, particularly in our culture, is completely blurred. And many of our women as Catholics, we don't know whom to look to because even Mary is kind of sugar-coated and it seems like she's silent and she's just praying and we don't see her. We don't see who she truly is because if we saw who mm. she is, we would think what an amazing model, right? Typically, modern feminists turn to Joan of Arc as their model. Well, Mary is a super Joan of Arc. She is, the scripture call her, um, she's the leader of, the, of God's army. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, quite yeah. powerful to say of a woman, right? And um, so basically what I'm saying is that what we learn in Genesis 1.27 is that um, not only in Genesis 1.27, I have to add one more thing. Um, we know, according to Genesis chapter 2, that Eve proceeds from Adam's rib, right? And there is this... Mm -hmm church father who is called Methodius of Olymp, and he says, and not only he, others have it too, but he says it kind of beautifully, um, that same as Eve proceeds, so she's created by the father and comes forth from the son, and God does not need to give, to breathe life into her because it's already in her being taken from Adam's uh, rib. Sim this imagery reflects how the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the creation of Eve reflects oh, wow. in creation how the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Oh, wow. So, and then the third element... Of Can we tell the Orthodox? Yeah, exactly. We should tell the Orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> you just explained it. The whole homoousios. Oh, my goodness. The whole... The whole uh, filioque. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, the filioque. Yeah. Wow. And so then it gets even better. You did it. You did it. Nina, you solved, well, you solved the East-West schism. Yeah. Did. I did. <laughs> but it gets even better because, so this is what I said in the beginning of the book or what I developed the chapter on is, um, you know, as a scripture scholar, of course, you need to study Hebrew. And um, when God says, it was not good for man to be alone, let me make him a helper. When we modern people hear the term helper, at least in German, I guess it's the same in English, you think like helper is like a, a mm -hmm. euphemism for a cleaning lady, right? So again, we are the Kinderkirche, Kirche, Kirche, uh, church, children, <laughs> cooking. Um, the idea that the, that's what the woman helps the man with, the menial stuff in the household that he doesn't want to do. Now, that's nothing to do with what this word means in the scriptures. If you take the word helper in Hebrew and you put it in your concordance and you look all the passages it appears in, in the Hebrew Bible, what you end up discovering is that everywhere else this word is exclusively used for God coming to man's help. Hmm. So there must be a reason why the Holy Spirit decided that in Genesis 2, 18 and 23, the, the word that explains why God created man is the same word that designates God as man's helper. Now, if you think within the Trinity, who is our helper, the advocate mm -hmm. that Jesus promises, obviously the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. and, e and so first I thought this is going a bit far, but then I discovered even the Catholic uh, catechism of the Catholic Church uh, looks at this and says, because this word is being used, it shows that 
Eve is created to represent God at the side of man. I mean, get this. We, how powerful is this? Eve was created to represent God at the side of Adam. There's a whole temple imagery going on there because the mm -hmm. scripture says she's taken from Adam's rib and then it doesn't say he molded her or something. It says he built her into the woman. And this mm -hmm. building is like God is building a temple. This woman is a temple at Adam's side. And through this woman, God intended to channel his grace, his presence. He wanted to be present to man in right. this woman. And of right. course, unfortunately, instead of then being that channel of God's presence, she listened to the serpent and became the opposite, the old Eve. But with that, like God always, like, you know, how he, he says in the letter to the Romans, the gifts and the charisms of God are irrevocable. God, woman's um, vocation, even if she didn't meet it, he didn't take it away from her. It remains, and in whom do we see it fully lived is Mary. She is mm. the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? To the point that a modern theologian like um, Colby would say she's the quasi-incarnation of the Holy Spirit, and of course immediately he qualifies it and says she's not the incarnation of the Holy Spirit because they're two different <laughs> persons, and Mary is created and the Holy Spirit is the divine person, but... He has so united himself to Mary and she is so completely open to the Holy Spirit that you can no longer distinguish between the two. And wherever the Holy Spirit is, Mary is, and wherever Mary is, the Spirit is, as um, again, an Orthodox theologian, Bulgakov calls her, she is the visibility of the Holy Spirit. She's the mm. appearance of the Holy Spirit. So she has fully realized what the Eve, old Eve failed to be. She is mm. the the place where Jesus resides, right? And so mm -hmm. for us women, I find this so incredibly inspiring to look both at Mary and the Holy Spirit and see how the two cooperate. Who is the Holy Spirit even within the, in the Trinity? He's the creator, but everything he creates, he receives, he, he conceives from the Father and the Son, right? And this receptivity mm -hmm. that woman has to receive, receive, and thereby bring forth fruit um, is what happens with woman when she opens herself to to be as receptive as the Holy Spirit is. There's nothing wrong with being receptive, right? It's right. great to be a man and to be generative, but it's hugely important also for someone to be receptive and allow uh, allow God to bring, bring forth this fruit. Then another thing, yeah. God is, um, the Holy Spirit, you know how Jesus says, and when you receive the helper, you, he and you, disciples, will be my witnesses. Now, I think it's not a coincidence that the first, first disciples to receive the news of Christ's resurrection, all of them are women, right? And they go and witness to the resurrection. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit does constantly, witnessing to Christ's death and resurrection. And so these are just some leads where I think mm. that as women, yeah. right. it's, that it's a yeah. huge dignity to to be called to uh, to reflect Him in creation. Yeah. Now we we often get to that idea of Eve and Mary, the old Eve, the new Eve, uh, Adam in Christ, the old Adam and the new Adam. But what you do really brilliantly in this, especially in this first chapter, is you don't stop at Eve 
and then just make the jump to Mary, <laughs> you show how throughout the scriptures we see these examples of exactly that same model. Yeah. So that this this model of, of the woman who is the helpmate, this model who's the, the woman who is the, the one who brings about something of God's saving graces and gifts, the, the woman who's able to communicate something of what God has given to her to those who need to receive it. Um, and so you, you lay out these several examples. I, yeah. I don't think we really can go into all of them, just by the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can't we, we had a professor who used you to should, say that too. You should buy the book. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Remember we had that professor and he would always say that like after, after at the end of class just buy the book <laughs> and he would just just buy he just wanted us to buy his book and it was like it was crazy. Anyway, um you you list out these these examples and and you're diving into each one of them and and you, I'm glad you brought up the Hebrew because the the Hebrew words are are so key here. As you're explaining this is the word that was used especially for Americans. We pick up the Bible, and and we read and we read it in English, and we we come to a word that we're a little uncomfortable with, or the way that it's translated in English, uh, and we, we kind of get annoyed that well this this sounds like uh, you know they're just victimizing this person or, or this thing, and we don't read we have bad habits as as Americans when when American Catholics when we read the Bible we don't always have the ability to read it in the in the sense of typology and recognizing themes that are connected often because we only hear what we hear at yeah. mass and that's that's kind of it when when you're able to break open the the hebrew and say this is what the hebrew word is it's translated this way in english but this is what it really means and so when you hear this word now in english you have to hear it with all of these mm. other contextual things surrounding it i mean it's it's incredible it's it's really beautiful and then you're you're amplifying so powerfully what the woman is in the scriptures and therefore in, in the whole life of the church. But as you do that, and Nina, I think this is a really important piece and, and a beautiful way that you have with your, your, your writing, it's never in opposition. No. It's, it's never in opposition to, to man. It's never in opposition to the way that that complementarity need, needs to be present. If there's opposition between any person that you write about and anything, it's opposition between them and that which is evil. Exactly, yeah. Opposition yeah. between them and, and the devil. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> it's, it's not opposition on, on a personal level or on a gender level. Yeah. It's rather the, the comp that complementarity allows things to really flourish. Yeah, exactly. And you see that very strongly in the second um, chapter on Easter, mm -hmm. where it's Mordecai and Easter together, both in their different positions, it's them and their complementarity working together who overcome the enemy. And again, we have the perfect prefiguration yeah. of Christ and Mary overcoming Satan together. And that needs to be prolonged in every male-female relationship, complementing each other with our specific gifts. And only if we complement each other and work together can we overcome evil and bring God's kingdom about. I love the way that you phrased it as... Uh, identifying weaknesses and then instead of exploiting weaknesses strengthening the person in their weakness that when I read that that blew my mind um, and it and it kind of brought forward a personal experience because um, I immediately thought to my own marriage and was like I'm like I'm the kind of guy that like if I get an idea I'm pretty gung-ho about something so I'll go for it real strong uh, like I think I, I remember I pitched to my wife once. I was like, we shouldn't have a TV. We should 
hit my TV with a baseball bat. <laughs> and she and she was like, or you could just give it up for a week. <laughs> like she like she calmed me down on it. You know, but it was like I saw that I saw that idea of identifying the weakness, you know, for me it was imprudence. Um but but then strengthening me in it. Like she encouraged me to to make the sacrifice, but to do it in a, in a reasonable way. Um, God gave you Renee to talk you off the ledge. Yeah, yeah. But God gave you Renee so that you wouldn't just <laughs> constantly be ready to jump. This so is I would good. Constantly <laughs> be hitting things with baseball bats. Um, but I, I really love that. But you know, it's funny because, so I'm, I'm 25. So I kind of grew up in this world of like total gender confusion. Mm. You know, like I don't, I don't really remember a time. I mean, I know that I know not. That's not to suggest that it was like totally like not there when you guys um, mm. were were at the Greg and stuff. Um, no, but, but I, I you, like it has I, increased so much totally. But yeah. but I really have been living in that radical time yeah. of gender confusion. Yeah, and so even even reading, you know, a work like this, where like you you listed a bunch of adjectives. I wrote them down. Um, and it was in refer- in reference to Esther, I believe. But you said that her help was love, wisdom, courage, sensitivity, and faith. And I was like, oh, that is so helpful. You know, just to have like concrete things that I can say, this belongs with the feminine genius. Mm. You know, as opposed to this. Because I mean, I'm telling you, like I have grown up with, there's no difference between men and women. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I and I did go to a Catholic school, and Father Sam was my chaplain, and I'm really glad that I know now now know about seminary and Sam. That's awesome. Um, but like we, but like my Catholic school, the, the education I received wasn't necessarily the most concrete in its Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more like in my personal relationship with Father Sam as a chaplain, I received some Catholicism. Awesome. He would let me, you know, like I hey, served thanks. mass with him often, mm-hmm. but it wasn't because I was going to uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. religion yeah. class yeah. and receiving the theology yeah. of the body. Um, so it's just so extraordinarily helpful to have mm. definitive words, mm. you know, like words mm. to identify the objective reality mm. of feminine genius. Mm. And I'm going to use the word masculine genius. Mm. I, I mean, I know mm. the feminine right. genius mm. is the more popular one right now. No, but I, you're absolutely right. Because when Pope, when John Paul II was talking about the feminine genius, everybody took the masculine genius for granted. And that's why nobody talked about it. But now it's almost gone the opposite, right? And yeah. Like, okay, we all understood the feminine genius. Let's go back and speak about man because he's lost. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because I, I, when I was reading it, I was like, it was funny because I'll, I'll try and write down some questions in preparation for for interviews, and I didn't want to write any down that were like, okay, tell me what I should be doing as as a man, mm. you know. But like, what is the masculine genius? <laughs> mm. You know what? What I don't know. Oh, oh, yeah. I, um, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please. I mean, us. I know some of it, you know, <laughs> I, but I, I like I, in the sense that you you sacrifice, you know, yeah. like that's a big thing for me. Sacrifice and service as a man. But you know what? I also so after I wrote this book, and a, a, a friend of mine was commenting back, and she said, you know, I was so helpful. You, uh, she said, we should also speak about the weaknesses of of what's the typical original sin of Eve and what's the typical original sin of Adam, right? And so mm-hmm. um, now I don't want to <laughs> take this in the opposite direction of what's <laughs> the male um, tendency, but the man's strength is also his weakness. And the modern culture has destroyed this, your weakness. You are born for leadership. Mm-hmm. And you have, of course, um, it's always difficult because we, uh, because immediately when we flesh out the stronger characteristics, there's always the exception to the case, but um, I, 
I see this in my own life and I, I observe it in the lives of many, many uh, friends, female friends. And okay, to, to quote someone who is more, um, uh, who is more credentialed speaking about this, what does Jordan Peterson point out, right? You have the female, mm -hmm. and this is the archetype forever, is the female symbolism is the chaotic and the masculine is the order. And I can't tell you how often in my life I'm confused in my concern, discernment. I have so many things going on and emotions and not knowing where to go. And I speak to a priest or to a man and tick-tock, he just puts order in there and I know where to go. And this is what, what we see in Genesis, right? Adam mm. was supposed to tell Eve, no, we're not going to eat, we're not going to eat from this fruit. Right. The problem is he doesn't mm. tell her because he knows right. the law of God. It was revealed to him, not to her. He stands for law and order, so to say, right? Mm. She didn't even know, probably. She would have only known if he had mediated because she was created after that law was given. So he should have told her, this is going to bring us death. Instead, he watches her because it says Adam was there with her. He watches her as she's being seduced by the serpent. And then he takes the fruit himself because of a cowardness to be the leader he's created to be, right? right? And so- Right, Dr. Han talks about that as well. Yeah, and it's, it's a huge weakness that it's, you know, because women have been so militant to be in leadership positions, I think many men out of love for women and reverence um, step back in a false sense of humility, allowing the women to lead where they actually should be stepping up and be the leaders. Right. I mean, what's the problem with the German bishops? They're not being the Adam they're called to be, right? right? They're listening to what the bride is saying, the lay people who want all these things. It's Aaron and the golden calf once again. Right. Who wanted the golden right. calf? Aaron. T Moses yeah. tells Aaron, what did you do with the people? And he said, they asked for it, right? Again, here the people right. is Eve. And, but the, but the, the reverse side of the weakness is the actual strength of having a mm. much clearer side of law and order and leadership and governance, for example. Right. right. I mean, right. Sin enters the world because Adam won't defend his wife. You know, so I mean, and you talked about that, right? What is one of the jobs? Um, oh, we're, you said fighting the enemies of God. Yeah. That was what there was a list of three, and yeah. I can't remember where the list was, but one of them is fighting the enemies of God. And in a sense, right, it is standing up. Standing yeah. up for what is right. That's yeah. what to fight the enemies of God is. You fight error. Yeah, yeah. It is uh, fight the enemy, so deliver the country from the enemy, thereby reinstore peace. But peace in the biblical sense comes if you um, install God's laws. So the king has to promulgate God's laws, make them known, which is preaching, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. help the people to observe the law. If they do that, peace comes and the enemy won't come back. And then lastly, build a temple so that God can make his, um, his palace, his residence, his dwelling in the heart of the people of God. And so it's building his kingdom. Hmm. You know, when people read this, and let's say they, they read this, they read a, a Scott Hahn book, they listen to the Bible in a year with Father Mike Schmitz, right? So as, as they're doing all of this, the, the feedback that I get from people the most in parish life is, I never knew any mm. of this. I yes. never heard this. Yeah. And so they, they ask, why did I never yeah. hear it? And I never have a good answer for them. 
um, because I'd, I'd like to think that I have at least a few times given them something similar to this. <laughs> yeah, but that is exactly like, what I've, I felt I've, I've like trying, when the Indian know? missionaries came to my parish, right? Like, here I am, a Sunday-going Catholic. Why have I never heard this? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's that's the experience of so many people when, when they they get a book like yours, when they hear a, a Scott Hahn talk, or when they just kind of dive into any kind of scripture study. It could be a simple Bible study, and they're suddenly gleaning information and getting insight into the scriptures that they never had before and that they never really heard before. And they're starting to understand that there's a whole language of the Bible that they were completely blind to. And I think that's really why that this project is so important. You know, what you're doing in, in this book is so key because you're you're showing that this is everything we're talking about, complementarity of, of male and female, and that these these vocations that are unique to men and to women, and that that complementarity, that togetherness, it's all rooted in, in scripture. And so when we're talking about this, we're not talking about it from a political ideology. And when we're faced with the things that the world is throwing at us right now with a lot of the confusion, we're not saying this because we want to be hateful or because we don't think no. it's because this is what's been revealed to us as a theological truth, yeah. as well as a biological yeah. truth, as well yeah. as a psychological truth, right? So when we say that there's, there's an equality, mm. we mean that equality of, of dignity. Yeah. But equality of dignity doesn't necessarily mean uh, equality of role. Yeah, exactly. And so there are certain things that, and actually, the the women who you select here in this in this book to highlight um, in in chapter one are are women who, in some cases, like well, like Queen Esther, she's the queen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she has a high office, mm -hmm. um, and the the way that being queen operates in mm -hmm. in her world is a little bit different, but. She has a high office. You have women who have a, a more simple path mm -hmm. that, they, that they follow. You have Judith, who sits as a judge over Israel. Mm -hmm. She's a leader of, of the Jewish mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and, and one of the key leaders mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. Jewish people. And so you see that there, there are certain roles that sometimes are given to mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. that, that God chooses them for. There's other times where there are certain roles that God gives to mm -hmm. men. Sometimes those are roles that once a, a man holds it, once a woman holds it. But then there's a role that only a woman will ever exactly. have yeah. to be a mother. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right? Only, only Mary could be the mother of the Son of God incarnate. Yeah. yeah. Only a woman could, could be that mother. Yeah. And biblically, only, only a man could be a father. This is the thing I was thinking about, actually. So yesterday in the Office of Readings, I got to find it here, but we got to read from, from Hebrews. And Hebrews, for me, has always been a, a difficult letter. <laughs> I don't think I, I really understand it, but so this is in uh, in Hebrews Isn't chapter seven. Isn't it you seven. and everybody else? I was just thinking the same. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the office of reading, the reading that that they gave us in, in Hebrews chapter seven ends with, and whereas man men subject to death receive tithes, Scripture testifies that this man lives on. Levi, who receives tithes, was so to speak tithed in the person of his father, for he was still in his father's loins when Melchizedek met Abraham. And I was thinking about this actually because we're, we're going to be talking today. Yeah. I'm going, wait a second. We're talking about the complementarity of the sexes, that man and woman complement one another. And in fact, it's when man discovers his own femininity mm -hmm. that he fully becomes who he is as a man. When woman discovers her masculinity, mm -hmm. she fully becomes who she is. When, when you realize that this is how we're created in the image and likeness yeah. of God. 
And so we have these, we have these, these things that the genius mm. of God himself is given to mm. us. It's just that as a, as a man, the masculine genius is what takes the first place. Yeah. And I need the feminine genius externally to be yeah. speaking into my yeah. life, right? But then I'm thinking, all right, well, biblically, we always talk about the mothers yeah. who they, they give birth. And then in the genealogies, it's always so-and-so begat, 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 begat. So the father became the father, became the father, became the father. And I'm wondering, in the biblical concept then, does the idea of fatherhood have a, a, a closer parallel to motherhood and a, a closer relationship to motherhood than what we moderns would give it. You know, normally I, I think, well, I, I have no idea what this pregnant woman is going through, mm-hmm. right? Because, because I couldn't, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't experience that. I couldn't possibly experience it. And I have, I really have nothing to say other than I can offer you my sympathy. Right. But then there's, there's something there of like, he was still in his father's loins yeah. when Abraham met Melchizedek. Yeah. The idea of like, Coming forth from the loins, like there's there's something there about fatherhood yeah, right. that was striking me. I'm, what's happening here? Yeah, you're right. I've never thought about that. It's very graphic. Oh but man, very I was deep. hoping that you could yeah. like that you could explain <laughs> all of Hebrews to me because it's such a great letter, but I just don't get it. And <laughs> well, now you certainly want to make me go and study this whole concept because I mean, no, 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 don't. I want you to I want you to take the pneumatological vocation of Eve <laughs> and right. make a full length book because we need this. This One is thing so at exciting. A time. <laughs> Although I'm definitely going to buy your three commentaries, so it's fine you can do those first. <laughs> when I yeah. see that, you already have the New Testament on your shelf, so I'm writing the yeah, series. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But these these things are so important, and these themes are so important. And so um, let's come back to the idea of being in seminary formation and and working to form future priests. You're teaching the Word, and you're teaching the Word in all of its depth, and you know, in the academic context, you've got that capacity to kind of force the issue. Mm-hmm. Here, look at the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, I skipped Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I should have. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm if I'm looking at my list of regrets, it's that I didn't pay more attention in Greek and that I skipped Hebrew entirely. <laughs> uh, like, I really wish that I had spent more time. I should have taken Reggie Foster's Latin yeah. class when I had the chance, and I didn't. And I feel like such a dope for skipping it. Like, <laughs> what was I thinking? Why did I think that I I would have time later on? Yeah, and I can just yeah. do this. I mean, listen. If you're a seminarian and you're and you're listening to this, just just know if you have the opportunity to take a cool course, take it now. Yeah, right. Don't skip it. Don't wait. Just, and learn just the do languages. Because, They're invaluable. Because you will never have a chance later on. Yeah. Oh, sure. Anyway, <laughs> as you're teaching the the word, I mean, that reaction from people when they read your book or when they listen to Bible in a year. To say, I never heard this before. What you're doing is going to help to answer that. But what do you say to your seminarians? What do you say to the guys who are being formed for the priesthood when they sit there and say, yeah, but Dr. Herdemann, this is this is great, but how am I supposed to actually proclaim this from the pulpit? How am I supposed to pull out you know, the, the concordance of, of Hebrew words and explain to people how the Hebrew alphabet works and all this other stuff? Like, what, what do you say to them for that? Well, luckily, they don't ask these questions. But once uh, <laughs> you ask that question, I would say, um, well, if you, if you were a seminarian, I would encourage you, to, of course, to go and study Hebrew. But on the other hand, 
there needs to be a division of labor in the kingdom of God and not everybody can do everything, right? And that's why God shuts me up in a library and has me study for 10 years so that I can write this book. And you can be out there saving souls and then you read my book and you can quote it. (laughs) (laughs) Pick up the concordance yourself. Perfect. Oh, great. Thank you for doing all the work for me. (laughs) I said that actually once to a priest friend of mine. I said, I'm I'm so grateful that God chooses some people to go to the biblical and not me. And to go to go and, and study scripture at this at this very intense level because I don't I don't know if I can do it. But the thing is that all of this is very it, it's actually very communicable. That's that's you're not what saying, I desire. You're not saying anything in here that that can't be expressed, that that can't be handed on, that can't be taught, and that can't actually be worked into a homily. Yeah. Heck, I was talking I think, about it at dinner tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to my mother in law about how uh the, the that word for helper had been so misconstrued in the past to, in a misogynistic way, but instead of being bottom up, it's actually divine assistance, top down. You know, and so it, it beautifully put, <laughs> top down. Well, I stole it from you, so <laughs> yeah, but you've coined it in a more modern way. Um, yeah, I once I don't. This is years ago. I read something about Edith Stein. And her ethos as a translator, apparently she was translating. And it really struck me because I, 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 for many years, if I think why I went to study and to learn how to read all these scholarly books, it was always with the intention, how can I translate this for the people in the pews? That's really my main hmm. desire and eros. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, all right, so you spent 10 years shut up in a library so you could write this book. <laughs> no, I hope not only um, this book. <laughs> <laughs> how how many how many more years before the next book then? Like how many years in the library do we have to do we have You're to kind. wait? Well, one year in the library to write the commentary, which is probably uh, will be interesting. You know, a commentary doesn't read as easily as a book like this. Mm-hmm. But I do hope that after that, like two years from now, God willing, he, I would be able to. I, I really want to write a book on the biblical theology of womanhood uh, combined with Mary. Because yeah. I'd so uh, love to write something about, you know, Mary is so misunderstood or not known. We all think we know her because we have these devotions, but we really have no clue who she really What is, is the most misunderstood feature of Mary? I think... Um, what, characteristic is probably a better word. Like misunderstood, I guess, this sugar coating, you know, her silence, and she's just the model of the modest woman who never opens her mouth and just is silent at mm-hmm. home. Um that I think is a complete mischaracterization, but I think more, I mean, of course, Mary was silent, but for a different reason. Um, I think what we completely underestimate is that she truly was co-redemptrix, which I know is not a popular term uh, in, mm-hmm. at the current time, but um, many saints, many popes, including John Paul II and even Pope Benedict have spoken about this. I think only if we truly understand to what extent she cooperated in the redemption of mankind, and not only by saying yes to the angel in Nazareth, that was certainly the first step, but her cooperation lasted every step of the way until that last moment when, like Abraham, she was standing underneath the cross and offering the sacrifice of her firstborn son, Jesus Isaac. Um, And not only externally, and not only just giving her yes, that flesh that's being crucified up there is entirely her own flesh. Jesus has no other flesh, other flesh, and that was 
which was given to him by her. Um, she is being co-crucified up there, voluntarily fully giving her assent, and thereby with Jesus giving birth to the new humanity. And the reason she could do this was because she was immaculately conceived, and therefore from the very first moment of her existence, she and the divine Logos, even before the incarnation, her soul and the divine Logos were in, were were in the mystical union, you know, you know how, like, how the mystics say this is the end of our spiritual life? Well, in her case, it was the beginning of the spiritual life because she was already in that mystical marriage the moment she herself was conceived and one with the divine Logos um, even before he was then conceived in her womb in flesh. So for that reason, she and the Logos were doing everything in sync, Adam and Eve, and giving birth to the new humanity in the same way as the first Adam and the first Eve were put over the old humanity. This means a capacity for suffering that is beyond any of our imaginations and um, a, a dimension of queenship that is also beyond imagination because she has become so truly and fully the temple of the Trinity, um, that I think if we could truly see who she is, we would shiver um, in the mm -hmm. same way as we would if we had a theophany. But because she's our mother, she hides all this from us so that we wouldn't be afraid of her and come to her like little tender children, which we're supposed to be doing, right? But it's a bit like with Jesus hiding himself in the Eucharist. If we saw him and in the Eucharist, we wouldn't be afraid to dare to receive him. <laughs> Um, and, um, the, and because Mary is all this, she has a power of intercession that we don't understand. Mm, we don't understand how, how instrumental she is in being the mediatrix of all graces, that when we approach mm -hmm. her, we truly are touching the divine and the Holy Spirit flows over into us, um, how she is involved in from the moment of our baptism into molding us into the children of God we're supposed, to, we're called to become. In, in every grace I receive, we receive. Um, she is implied like a mother giving her maternal milk. She's, she's mm, mediating right. to us. And I hope everything I say is correct because Father Sam, the ecclesiologist, I'm, is listening <laughs> to me as I flesh out <laughs> the, the, the role of the church, which is Mary as a person. Right, and I was actually thinking about that earlier today. If if the role of the church is Mary, I'm sorry, if Mary, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Mary as a person, right, kind of represents the church. Well, everyone is saved through the church. Yeah, right. I mean, there's the whole big thing yeah. for Vatican, yeah. Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, paragraph yeah. fourteen, right. Um, but the fact that all people, that the church is the organ of salvation, and all grace. If if Mary is yeah. the mediator of all grace, yeah. Right then, in a sense, right, this salvation in, like flows through Mary. Yeah. Right. I like that connection. That that tissue was formed for me today. You know, that connective tissue was formed for me today. Reading your book, so I was appreciating awesome. that. Awesome! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and Matt, that's that's why the last chapter of Lumen Gentium is about Mary. Right. That's that's why they they included Mary. They didn't make her a separate document. They almost did. Mm -hmm. And. I go back and forth. Some days I wish that they had done a separate document, like articulating a theology of Mary, just completely separate from everything else. But then I'm really grateful that they included it 
in the document on the church because right. the Marian dimension of the church is so key. And it's actually by, by including that, they, I think they, they allow us to keep that idea. So the, go back to the very beginning of Lumen Gentium and to what Nina was saying before about Eve being built into a woman. Right, that God built her, and so there's temple imagery. This is exactly one of the images that Lumen Gentium wanted to recover for the church, that the church is God's building, the temple sacred to the Lord, as Eve was sacred to the Lord, as Mary is sacred to the Lord. And so that whole connection of, of this is what's built up, but then it's for a purpose. Right, The, the church is, is built up for a purpose, and it's, it's precisely to, to bring that life into the world, that saving grace that you're talking about. Like all salvation is going to come come this way, and so there has to be the building for it to come through, right? And so mm-hmm. that's that's the beauty. Of, uh, I love it. I get so excited about this. Stuff. <laughs> it's good, man. man. Father Sam, um, you like ecclesiology. <laughs> I I do like ecclesiology a lot, but here's the thing. Okay, I, I have found, and and this was the, maybe the biggest surprise. So Nina, now that you're now that you're teaching and you're you're in uh, biblical theology all the time, right? Uh, do you find this this is still like the primary love for you? Oh, uh, or do you every once in a while find yourself like getting really interested in something else? I have found, for example, so I've always thought that ecclesiology was going to be the, the one true love of my theological mind. And the longer I'm a priest, the more I want to do scripture study and the more I want to study canon law. Oh, okay. Okay. I get you. Yeah. Um, well, I have to say, we did have a good canon law professor, right? Father Gerlanda. I thought he was really good. He's now Cardinal Gerlanda. Yeah. Um, but um, no, yeah, I've always... He's, he's making some weird suggestions these days. I'm not, I'm, I, I don't agree. know what happened. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he taught the opposite of what he's saying now. Yeah, exactly. He was. He taught one thing and now he's now he's saying some... It's, I don't know. I mean, there's. Yeah. I guess there's room to grow for yeah. everyone. But anyway. Okay, we leave that to the canon lawyers. So, yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, but you're right. Um, my the, my heart my uh, I've always been the atypical exegete because my heart was always drawn towards systematics and I've always loved dogma and it was really hard for me to take the decision to go to the biblicum, but I knew I had to go there because somehow we needed to recuperate the power of the Word of God, which is sacramental to the church. Uh, but my desire was always to learn how to see how all the dogmas um, can be explained in a biblical idiom and how, um, yeah, we just need, like, well, you know what Pope Benedict was doing, explaining the dogmas in a biblical idiom. So if you give me, if you say like, I'm giving you a year, you don't have to produce anything, you can do what you want with this year, I would definitely go and read systematics. Like I'd be reading Mm. Sheban, (laughs) all of Sheban, and then I'd be reading all of Ratzinger, and uh, and then I'll see. (laughs) There's there's a couple of guys that I would like to read, but also like lately I've been, uh, I am very drawn, but this is also a biblical connection, to the true meaning of liturgy, you know, like more the cosmic liturgy. I like Louis Bouillet and mm. and Alexander Schmemann and um, yeah, you know, it, at the end of the day, if you're a Catholic, yeah, it just all comes together and you can't separate. Yeah, Scripture has its sitzim leben in the liturgy, and um, so does dogma. You just brought sitzim leben in. <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> for 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 Matt, could you explain what that means? Um, <laughs> so this is a concept. Thank you. 
No, Matt, it's because I can't remember what it means. <laughs> don't tell Nina. <laughs> I, I don't even know. Just... It came up a lot in class when we were in theology together. I never knew what it meant then. <laughs> <laughs> because you couldn't turn around and ask me. I could only turn around exactly, and ask you. Exactly, because you were in front and it was like, be way too obvious if I was poking in the back of the head saying, hey, Nina, hey, Nina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... so um, the literal translation into English is like sit, see, <clears throat> your your seat in life. So that doesn't make much sense. So it's a it's a concept that comes from biblical exegesis. <clears throat> and basically, there was a time when they were looking at the different, you know, particularly when you look at the Old Testament, you wonder like, where was this oracle first spoken or what was this text written for? Um, let's say if you have a law, of course, you think maybe this was written for the court or something. And so and then you would say it's seat in life would have been the court in Jerusalem. Or, um, you know, even with the Gospels, you can ask, well, which situation in life were they actually meant for, right? right. So that's a very... So is it, kind of, is it kind of like historical critical method? Exactly, exactly. It's, okay, it's okay. the top category in the historical critical method. Where does this belong historically? In the life of the people back then. And right, so it right. was coined by German scholars. And then for some reason, it became a technical term that's used in all the languages. And always in Everywhere, the German right? sits leave. <laughs> right. The precise yeah. meaning of the words for that time. Yeah. And and particularly yeah. what was the context I may or may not in be the teaching life Jesus of the people of, of Israel where this would have been showed up showing up. Oh man. Wow. Okay. One one last thing, Nina. Um going back to, to our, our days at the Greg when you were one of the few lay women in, in class there, what was that experience like walking in and being surrounded mostly by seminarians, uh, a few, a few religious sisters, uh, one layman, scripture too. Yes. So we produced two great scripture <laughs> scholars out of our, out of that class. But I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, it was, it was Nina, it was Chiara, it was Andrea. And Agnes. Uh, it was, and Agnes. And you know that right? Andrea yeah, so is was, now a Calmond, Camaldolense's sister. You probably don't know. Yes. Yeah, no. I heard about oh, that. Yeah. I heard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. They only speak once a year at Christmas. Oh, let me tell you, there's nothing better than knowing that I know someone who's in uh, such a, yeah. a strictly cloistered monastery yeah. and who's living that kind of life of prayer because I know... I know who she's praying yeah. for, and I know I know that like we're on that list. Exactly. Yeah. Can you write her a letter and able... get me on that list? <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll find out where the monastery is <laughs> so <laughs> I can do that. Cause, yes, because I could use for some sure. prayers. <laughs> yeah. No, there's nothing better. But I mean, what was it like going into that as one of a, a handful of lay students? Um, yeah. Interesting. Um, because you always seemed like it just, it, of course I'm here. Why wouldn't I be? Yeah, you're right. I wonder why I had that chutzpah to think that. Um, <laughs> but I always considered well, it. Good... We didn't think anything of it. We're just like, there's not that many. I mean, I hope she feels comfortable. Like... <laughs> <laughs> well, number one, I grew up with four brothers. So that was helpful. Okay. Um, but yeah, I always, I always just considered it to be such an honor to be receiving the same mm. education as these future priests. And... Um, yeah, I, tr I truly experienced it as a huge gift, and I didn't take it for granted at all. Luckily, I never wanted to be a priest in my life. So I was always, um, by, really only by God's grace, I don't know, I just, 
I never battled with this idea that, oh, I wish I could be. I knew that whatever my vocation as a woman is, it's so precious and so deep. And I'm called to be his bride. Why should I want to be his bride, my bridegroom, right? Like, who gets to be his bride? Mm. That's amazing. <laughs> and so um, uh, I just thought it was a huge privilege to be allowed to 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 study with future priests and to know there's all these guys are going to be priests one day. And uh, and hopefully they will pray for all the uh, people who've crossed their paths, and I will be among them. <laughs> um, so like you 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 take solace in, in knowing Andrea the Camaldolense. I take solace in having had so many priestly classmates. <laughs> um, no, it, no, I just uh, and also I mean you know even that the Lord would trust me to go into their midst and not have the idea to steal anyone's vocation. You know, like I felt like thank you Jesus for trusting me to be in here. You know, that's not evident either. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I was just always grateful. And it continued to be yeah. the great case because then in the doctorate I was teach, I was um, studying with priests all the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And now you're preparing priests. Now I'm preparing, exactly. And the majority of my colleagues are priests and, um, yeah. Wow. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, the book is A Thirst for the Spirit, Biblical Wisdom for Desert Times. Nina, is there any place that people can find you other than in this book? Oh, in German, unfortunately. Um, I have a YouTube channel, which is called Mini Cut with a K, but it's all in German. And I don't think it does much good in turning on the captions. Sometimes it works. But um, basically, I went once through the three-year cycle. And for almost every Sunday, there's an explanation of how the first reading syncs with the gospel. So at the moment, I'm taking a break because I've covered the cycle. Um, I've even done yeah. four years. Um, but I've tried to focus on being active there because of what's happening in Germany. I feel like in English, you get so much good stuff anyway. You've mentioned Father Schmitz. You have your this your own podcast. Like, there's so much in English. Whoa. That Did I, you hear that, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I didn't she know. She just we put were... us with Father Mike Schmitz. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're we're on that level. Yeah, wow. you are. <laughs> wow. So okay. I don't He I is don't, not yet a friend gonna of the be, show, but that's he gonna will become be. one of the endorsements for the tangent. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Nina Sophie Hederman says they're on the same level as Father Mike Schmitz in the Bible in a year. Soon to be friend of the in show. In fact, Father better. Mike they're Schmitz. better than that. That's what yes. she said. Those were her words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's why I, I don't do I don't purpose you know, when I'm asked I like, there's like two or three videos I've done on YouTube but uh but uh like lectures that have been recorded but um, I don't actively engage. I don't have my own English social media because I focus on the yeah. German evangelization. Do you write in English or did you write in German first and then no, translate into English? No, this book I wrote in English. Yeah. Wow. What's that like, writing in, in a language that's not your first language and just like, I'm going to write a book-length entry here? No, yeah. On a, yeah, I, I often say, hope that the Lord takes into account the sweat that costs because, of course, it would be so much easier to write in German. <laughs> I, I can't imagine trying to write I envy a, a you guys that the lingua another, franca is your language. mother tongue <laughs> oh, we are lucky yeah no question <laughs> we are lucky wow oh, I mean I'm right, grateful well, that know. living and growing up in Europe afforded me to learn other languages but it's a great blessing if you could just speak and write in English without having to think yeah yeah, it, it that's true. That's true. But you speak like seven, twelve no, no, languages. No, 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 no. <laughs> so like what? Five? How, how many? <laughs> I, English is really my best language after German. 
Okay. Yeah. But she also knows Italian. I do. Greek. Well, I read Greek Hebrew. New Testament. Latin. I read Hebrew and I speak French, but then the rest is passive. <laughs> <laughs> it's more it's more than me and yeah, together. Yeah. So that's great. <laughs> wow. Nina, thank you so much. This is this is awesome. It's it's been well, great. Well, thank to you talk for you. having and me. This is a great honor. I, I've got to say it again. I can't wait for the next book. I think this is really, truly, I think this is one of the most important contributions that we've had uh, in biblical theology, but also something that's made for people to read. That's that's made not just for the academy, but for, for everybody. This is, this is hugely important. Buy this book, A Thirst for the Spirit. It's amazing. Thank you. This is so <laughs> encouraging and a, a confirmation that I have to find time to write. Thank you so much. 